the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Body the answer or Salem Media Group. by Bill Bullington. For the next hour, you'll receive information on current market conditions and trends that could affect your financial future. If you have a question, you can participate in today's program by calling 216-901-0945. That's 216-901-0WHK. You can also reach Bill by going to his website, BullingtonCapital.com. And now, here's Bill Bullington. Well, welcome back. I have to apologize. I have a slight cold, so I don't sound like myself. That's probably why. Well, one of the reasons anyway. Anyway, today's show, I thought I would talk about a couple different topics, and I just want to start off by answering one of the questions I get asked all the time is, what makes you different? Um, you know? That's that's an interesting question. What makes us different? I, I think there are, are quite a few things. And when you're dealing with uh, any firm, I think you should probably ask, uh, you know, what, uh, how they're different. I think that's a great question. And for us, I think it comes down to quite a few things. Uh, one of them being we have a very unique method of um, helping people figure out how much, what kind of risk taker they are. That's a big thing. I mean, it's huge. I'm a fiduciary, which means I have to, you have to be comfortable with what I'm doing and I have to fully disclose everything. Full disclosure is key. I think it's, it, I think it's common sense. I, I always thought it was common sense and I just didn't understand why people wouldn't do that because it's not like they're going to f- be able to uh, be fooled forever. Uh, the, so basically just be upfront. Let's talk about everything. Let's talk about the things that are important to you. I don't really care what's important to me. Uh, if you ask me what my opinions are, absolutely, I will tell you. If you ask me what I think is best for you after we've had a conversation, which incidentally, you have to have a conversation. If you haven't had a conversation with uh, the person that's actually helping you manage investments, maybe you want to do that. <laughs> Just saying. It's, it's important to get to know somebody to get to know what kind of risk taker they might really be. And that is not an easy task. All the questionnaires that I see out there, everybody that's answering these things has no idea what they mean. I have them. I've, I've, I've seen, I don't know, at least a couple hundred of those over my career. It reminds me of how old I am now. <laughs> but the, uh, the bottom line is, you know, you really have to have some method of figuring out what kind of risk taker you are. And basically, so here's what I do. And, and this makes me different, like really different. And I'm, before I even tell you how I do it, I'm going to tell you why it makes me different. 
The reason it makes me different is we talk about the real stock market and what the real risk has been. Most people are talking about a statistical number when they talk about stock market risk. They call it volatility. They call it fluctuation. Um, they call it standard deviation. I'm, I'm so glad they stopped using that term because you had to have uh, college-level math, typically, to understand what standard deviation was, unless you went to a private school. But anyway, so they use all these terms. Nobody knows what they mean. And they get you to sign something and, and decide how what kind of a risk taker you are without really understanding the questions. And I just really have never liked that. So my method is a lot simpler. And I think it does a much better job of actually preparing pe- people for what they might be uh, up against. And that makes me different. So I was just talking to, I'm always talking about this, by the way. This is one of the first things that you have to do is sit down. What kind of risk taker are you really? It's because the stock market or the S&P 500, which most people kind of refer to as a stock market, although that's not totally accurate, but yeah, we'll leave that for another day. Stocks in the uh, S&P 500 tend to fluctuate a lot, like a lot, a lot. Sometimes the whole S&P 500 index, and the way that it's calculated has a big impact on this, by the way. We'll talk about that in a future show, too. But sometimes the whole index, if you're invested in an S&P index fund or SPY, that's a uh, an ETF that mirrors the S&P 500. It dropped from March of 2000 to March of 2003 over 50%. It dropped over 50%. Now, the standard deviation of the S&P 500, which is has also been called risk by some unnamed institutions who I think knew better and did this anyway. <laughs> I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm just going to assume they didn't know any better. They will tell you that the standard deviation of the stock market is 16%. And you know what? That's actually... Correct. It's 16%. But what people interpret that as is, oh, well, I could only be down 16%. And that's not true. And the standard deviation of 16% is true. What that means is in two out of three years on average, roughly about two thirds of the time, the stock market will be either up or down about 16% from its long-term average. Up or down from its long-term average. That's what that means. What people are interpreting that is as is that I can only be down 16%. And you know why they're interpreting it that way? Because it's typically how it's being presented. And I'm I'm not a big fan. Because if you're only expecting a 15% or 16% decline and you retired in March of 2000 and you put all your money in the S&P 500 because you saw what a great return it was or any mutual fund, doesn't matter. Any stock fund, the vast majority of them today, they move together much more so than they did in the past. And almost all of them were down 50% or so. There were a handful that weren't. We'll get to what those were a little bit later in today's show. But most of them, the vast majority of them were down 50% or more during that time period from 2000 to 2003. And from 2007 to 2009, there was even a larger percentage of them that were down over 50%. Okay, so it's not 16 percent that that is woefully inadequate as a description of what kind of risk you're taking. 
but it is the generally accepted method of my industry. It's mind-boggling that they get away with that. That's my industry. I'm a part of that industry. And that's the part I'm always going to rail against. (laughs) I think you need to know. I think you need to know that in 2000 through 2003, had you put all your money in the wrong type of stock funds, you'd be down 50%. And by the way, the right type of stock funds wouldn't have made much money in in the five years prior to that point. That's another discussion that we'll have at some point in time. So in 2007 through 2009, the vast majority of funds went down 50% or more. Now, that is two times within one 10-year time period. By the way, if the calculations for standard deviation were accurately reflecting the actual risk of the market, that would have never have happened. Why? Because according to them, the, that it's too large of a drop. Now, uh, by the way, Mathematically, I'm not saying that they're not correct. They are correct because the way that they're calculating it, it does work that way. But that's not the way people are interpreting it. And they know that. There's no possible way that they could not know that. So they're publishing those statistics knowing that people are misinterpreting them. Okay. Just, I, I just can't, I can't run my practice that way. So that's one of the things that makes me different. I want you to know exactly or to the best of my abilities, what kind of risk you're taking, how much risk you're taking. It's going to be hugely important as you're accumulating assets. It's going to be even more important when you go to start taking money out of your accounts. Because if you have a 50% drop, and and incidentally, had you invested in March of 2000, we went through two 50% drops from 2000 to 2003, and then from 2007 to 2009, if you had put all your money in the S&P 500 and started taking money out of it, there's a pretty good chance that you're in your 80s and you're looking for a job. I mean, think about that. You're in your 80s looking for a job. No. <laughs> I don't care what the long-term return of that investment is. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go in with both of my eyes open, understanding that, yeah, these things could actually fluctuate a lot. They do fluctuate a lot. All stocks fluctuate a lot. So uh, I'm going to not use the 16% number that's being shown to me and and by almost every major financial firm on the planet. I'm actually going to look at uh, the peak to trough declines. How long were they? By the way, that's another thing. They're looking at it on an annual basis, a year by year basis. Who, you know, somebody forgot to tell the stock market to begin and end its cycles on a calendar year. It just, it doesn't do that. The 2003-2003 was three years. And by the way, in the meantime, over that three-year time period, you had some rallies. The market would go, it doesn't go straight up or straight down. If it did, that would be a lot easier. So here's my uh, here's my point. If you're going to do a realistic projection on how much money you could expect to take out of your savings during retirement, you should probably use a number that's larger than 16% as the fluctuation level. If you start using the larger numbers, you're going to see that you should probably be taking out less money or be, uh, uh, and by the way, you should be taking out less money than you think. You know, I can't tell you how many people come in and say, well, you know, stock market makes 10% a year. Give me 10% a year. Um, 10% is an average. 
an average with a 50% drop in it every now and then. If you started doing that, if you did that, you'd be, you know, you'd, you'd get to join the uh, people in their 80s looking for a job. That That's not good. But if somebody told you, said, hey, you know, if you invest all your money into an S&P 500 fund and it drops 50% and you're taking out 10%, you're going to run out of money. Would you still do it? Would you still take the chance that you'd be one of the lucky ones? Now, by the way, if you had invested, let's say you retired three months later in March of uh, 2003, and then you started doing it. Well, your money would last quite a bit longer, and you can attribute all of that to luck. So one thing, one one of the things I really don't want to do when I get to retirement age is rely on luck. I don't want to rely on luck. <laughs> and by the way, you have to have a lot of really good luck for that. So anyway, if you go into it with both eyes open, saying, hey, if I'm going to invest in stocks, they can be down 50% or more. So maybe I want to limit the amount of money that I put into stocks. Here, by the way, is this, the very first thing that most people think of when, when I start talking about this. Well, you can get me out of the way when the market's dropping, right? Um, no. Actually, nobody's able to do that. Uh, if you look at the people that try to do that, there's a uh, investor, uh, Dalbar, there's a study uh, firm that studies that. Uh, and the average investor's returns are nowhere near the 10% of the, the stock market. Over the past 20 years, the market's only averaged 7.7, by the way. Yeah, their returns are a fraction of that. Anybody that tries to forecast the future with a high degree of accuracy is asking for it. <laughs> and a lot of things that, that would work, say, 10 years ago, they don't work anymore. I, I know because I use them and I track them and I see how they're doing. That's why a lot of them we've stopped using because they stopped working and I get it. I know why they stopped working, but we've made adjustments now and we're going to be talking about a lot of those adjustments when we come back from a commercial break, which is probably coming up here in another minute or so. And we're going to talk about what can you do today to reduce risk and still try to keep your returns up there so that you don't have to go and find a job when you're in your 80s, because that would be rough. I even hear rumors that Walmart's going to replace the greeters with robots. So <laughs> I don't know if it's a rumor or not. Uh, somebody's just trying to scare people. <laughs> yeah, there goes a lot of people's retirement plans. <laughs> so uh, that's pretty funny. Anyway, I don't know if that's true or not, but you know. In the realm of all possibilities, I guess all things are possible. You know, when I say that, by the way, everybody goes, no, they're not. I'm going, no, no, no. In the realm of all possibilities, I didn't say probability. I said all possibilities. All things are possible. Browns may go undefeated this year. Is it, <laughs> That's a possibility. Uh, the probability, however, is a lot different. And, and incidentally, that's the marketer. Uh, that I've identified out there, that's what a good marketer would do. They would you, they would change those words, possibility and probability, knowing that you're going to misinterpret that. <laughs> anyway, you're listening to Bill Bullington right here on 1420 The Answer. Stay tuned because I'll be right back.
And welcome back. You're listening to Bill Bullington. I'm right here on 1420 The Answer. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon. Also, you can find this on the Fish's podcast, 955thefish.com. Or you can go to my website, uh, bullingtoncapital.com, and it's saved there. It's also available on iTunes. I'm not sure why anybody would want to download that, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm my own show's worst quit critic. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mm, I just lost my whole train of thought there. Anyway, we were talking about the risk that's present in stock funds. And I was kind of pointing out that, you know, the S&P 500, which most people refer to as a stock market, it's not absolutely correct, but, you know, all other things being equal, we'll just accept that for now. It was down 50% twice in less than 10 years. So you figure if your life expectancy is 10 years or longer, Maybe you don't want to have 100% of your money in there unless you can stand to see it drop by 50% and not be upset. I say, that's the trick. What's your level? What's your pain level? What kind of pain can you uh, withstand? And here's my opinion on this. You should try to write down the amount of assets that you have in your savings, your investment accounts. Start subtracting percentages from them. Take 10% off. Ask yourself, how do you feel? Can you put up with that? Take 10, 20% off. How do you feel? Can you, can you withstand that? Now, knowing that for every uh, 10 or 20% that you're going to take out and not invest in the market, it's going to reduce your returns. If you've got half of your money in the stock market and the other half in something that's relatively safe and the market were to drop by 50%, Okay, the stock half of your portfolio is probably down about 50%, but 50% of 50% is 25%. Aha, I'm only down half. Why? Because I only have half my money in stocks. Well, why put them in there to begin with? Uh, Well, because you're probably going to need the returns that historically have been significantly higher than bonds or CDs. Now, bonds, CDs, annuities, I think they have the right kind of annuities. I think they have a very good place in your plan. But your plan's got to be your plan. You know, that's you know, I wouldn't want a cookie-cutter plan. I would want a plan that's kind of tailored to my personal tolerance of being able to take risk. And that's another thing that makes Bullington Capital different. If you decide to take advantage of the free Get Acquainted meeting... I'm going to sit down and I'm going to show you this stuff and you get to decide. By the way, it's not just a, um, we decide once and leave it and forget it. Nope. That that's not how we work. We ask you to come in. Uh, we're going to reassess those things every, every year or every other year. Uh, see if anything changes in your life. You know, that's the funny thing about life. It happens to change quite a bit. So you got to update these things. Uh, you may be like me. I think I'm about, mm, I think I'm about 75 to 80% invested in stocks. So if the stock market were to have a 50% decline, I'd be down somewhere around 35 or 40% or so. That's how much I'd be down because I have most of my money in stocks. Now, I don't really, that doesn't really bother me to have that much of a, of a decline because I don't intend on retiring anytime soon. And I'm pretty confident that I'll make the money back. So that's how I feel. That's the right allocation 
for Bill Bullington. What's the right allocation for you? I don't know. I don't know what your risk tolerance is. And by the way, this is one of the really important uh, reasons that if you're married, you probably want to have these conversations with your spouse. Trying to jump in and jump out of the market is not the right thing to do. That's the wrong thing to do. We talked about another study, which you can also get a copy of if you decided that you wanted to take advantage of that that meeting that where there's no cost. And we sit down and I show you all this and I go through uh, what your risk tolerance is, trying to try to figure that out. There's a, a slide I can give you, or it's actually a, a printout I can give you, of what happens if over the past 15 years, over the past 15 years, if you had missed the 10 best days, so you missed 10 days out of 15 years, that return from the S&P 500 goes from 7.7 to 1.9. You're only out of the market for 10 days in your <laughs> And uh, by the way, there used to be some things that you could actually do that would uh, not drop your return that just don't work anymore. So those days are gone. And the reason I bring that up is because I used to use those. I know they don't work anymore because I, I used them until they, uh, until the effectiveness started dropping and then I stopped using them. And that's kind of, that's another thing that you have to do. You're going to have to adjust. You know, we've been talking a lot about the 5G and the next industrial revolution that's going on right now as we speak and how to take advantage of that. Well, that's a change. The 5G wasn't really popular up until about three, four years ago when it still wasn't popular in mainstream media. It started getting more popularity and now it's getting more and more airtime because it's a big deal. 5G is going to change your life. Mark my words, there's an industry that's that's benefiting from that right now, and it looks like over the next five or ten, imagine going back into, oh, I don't know, probably the uh, 1996, 1997, okay? And I don't know if you remember all the technology stocks, how well they did. Most people got into them in 98, 99, right before they crashed uh, and took... 12 or 13 years to recover. Some of them never recovered. But anyway, if you if you caught a little bit of that move from 96 up through 2000, if you just caught a little bit of that move, and if you rebalance your portfolio, that's the next thing I'm going to talk about, rebalancing. It's the, the best thing you can do for a portfolio is to rebalance it. How often depends on how aggressive your portfolio is. But we're going to get to that in the last portion of today's show should probably want to stay tuned for that because it's really important, especially if you're investing in stuff like semiconductor funds who are benefiting from 5G. 5G, just if you don't know, is fifth generation cellular, but they're going to not just do cellular in it. And that, it was actually developed for the driverless cars. And a driverless car, by the way, has to send and receive an enormous amount of data. It's actually calculating the distance between it and the cars around it. Think about that for a second. It's bouncing signals off of cars. (laughs) And it has to process that and make adjustments to the steering. Now, that scares a lot of people. It doesn't scare me because I've seen a bunch of 80-year-olds driving. (laughs) Now, that is scary. In fact, anytime I drive through Parma, I'm like on edge. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's 
especially to the Parma people. I know you're not all 80 there. <laughs> and not all 80-year-olds are bad drivers. My parents are actually pretty good drivers. But the uh, just a joke. Don't get upset. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. That person that slams the uh, car into reverse, hits the, the gas, and, you know, takes off into the street without watching or looking. Yeah. So the driverless car is probably going to be a lot safer. But to be safer, it's actually got to process an enormous amount of data really fast. It's calculating the distance between it and the cars in front of it and the cars to the side and, and the positioning that you are in between the lanes. And it's amazing that it works. And I rented a car that had the driver assist just to see what it was like because I'm too cheap to spend the money on it right now. <laughs> It'll come out. The price, it's like, you know, remember how expensive computers were? The uh, uh, A Mac in the early 80s was $5,000. Five grand from Mac, and by the way, it still had Sony on the monitor. They were putting those things together in Steve Jobs' garage. <laughs> really good. Read that book. Read his uh, biography. That they, they were putting those together themselves. At that point in time, it was probably in a factory. But they still couldn't afford to get their own monitors made. They were buying them from Sony, and you saw the Sony name right on all the uh, Mac monitors. And they were 5000 bucks in the early 1980s. And as you know, five thousand dollars was a lot more was worth a lot more back then. In fact, you could get a brand new car. I think we bought a Chrysler LeBaron for my mom. It was seven thousand bucks. I think that was the very first brand new car that we'd ever purchased as a family. And I remember thinking, seven thousand dollars, <laughs> and a Mac computer was five grand. <laughs> and you could barely do anything with it. You could play a couple video games. You could do some spreadsheets, uh, a little bit of word processing, not a whole lot. The uh, was uh, uh, anyway. Long story short, that five G is actually further along in its progression uh, in the development than PCs were at that point in time, and it's going to affect everything. When they when they got done with the uh, not done when they when they felt like they could market the service. 5G service uh, through the driverless cars, somebody figured out that they could also do internet uh, connect connectivity and cell phone connectivity using the 5G. Uh, well, what's the big deal there? Well, the internet speeds are significantly faster on 5G and it's a wireless technology, meaning you don't have to have anybody come out to your house to set it up. You're going to come out, it's going to be shipped to your house in a box, a little box that you're going to plug into an outlet somewhere. And all your devices, all your smart devices, your phones, your laptops, your televisions, your computers, they're all going to ha- hook up to that wirelessly. And you're going to get speeds that don't exist today on uh, fiber. So if you had fiber optics to the house, hopefully you didn't have it installed in the last 12 months because that's, you know, over the next 12 months, you'll probably have other options that are less expensive. I hate to see you have to waste that money, but uh, I'm just kidding. It'd probably take a little bit longer than that, but it's on its way. So when you can have internet and the internet of things, that's a big one. All these factories that are working on that. Uh, if I'm a kid, I'm trying to learn how to code. Uh, if I'm going to school, I am absolutely looking uh, trying to learn how to code. But, you know, every job, incidentally, will be changed by these things because these devices, we all have them. Everybody's got a computer in their office. Everybody's got a phone in their office. Uh, 
Everybody's got a uh, laptop. Um, everything's going to run a whole lot faster, and you're going to be able to do a whole lot more stuff with that connectivity and the amount of data that you can actually transfer. So you'll take a 4K video on your cell phone and stream it live over the Internet, and just about anybody in the world will be able to watch it at some point in time. I'm not sure that's all that good. (laughs) That might be a little rough, actually. But it's coming anyway. That's the way it's going to come. And uh, I think it's cool. You'll be able to talk to your devices and set them up in your house. Uh, Some of them you can actually do that now. And what this, what all this means is that there's going to be an awful lot of stuff that's going to be purchased to make that happen. And when that gets purchased and that stuff is implemented, it's actually going to make it easier for people to sell things online. It'll make it easier for Amazon. Amazon's, you know, a big winner there, but so are individual companies. And Amazon, by the way, has already recognized this. They recognize that when you get a super fast network out there that the a lot of the manufacturers that are selling through Amazon today will be able to hire some kid out of college to put up a website that's going to fulfill the order significantly faster than Amazon can. Think about that for a second. And Jeff Bezos has already talked about this. This is not, you know, I'm not forecasting the future. I'm just reading and reporting what I've what I've read. He's talked about it and I was wondering if he was going to mention that, and then in an article it showed up, you know, hey, say, hey, Amazon. He was say he was talking about the demise of Amazon, and I know what he's talking about. By the way, you know who benefits from that as well as the semiconductor companies? If I'm working at UPS or FedEx right now, I'm like, oh man, my job's secure. <laughs> my job is pretty. So if you're a halfway decent worker there, you know, stay there. You know, get your if you like it. Yeah, because they're going to be direct beneficiaries. United States Postal Service will actually be uh, helped out quite a bit because when these companies, when it gets so fast that you can set up a website and it looks awesome and you can put, you can target ads directly at Google knows who all your customers are, by the way. The, uh, so you can do an ad program directed at people who are in the SIC codes of the industry you make products for, uh, or consumers ever, ever typed in. Uh, oh, I want a special type of shampoo and you're that, that shampoo maker, you know, they're going to be able to show your ads and you'll be able to buy direct. And that's probably going to be shipped there by FedEx, UPS, or the U S post office. Think about that. Yeah. That is job security <laughs> for those guys. Yeah. And, um, it's really cool. I mean, I look around at, at how many industries are going to be affected by this. It's mind-boggling. That, that's why they're calling it, I, f- I forget what, the fourth or fifth industrial revolution, something like that. If you read on, online, you'll see that. And, it, and it's going to create jobs. It's going to create opportunities. It's going to create a stock market that's going to have a lot of it's healthier profit margins. You know, that's one of the other things that's happened with this. The profit margins are enormous relative to what they were uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now that I hear the music, I mean, that means I have to take a commercial break. I'll be right back. You're listening to Bill Bullington right here on 1420. I could tell myself to breathe 
Bullington, I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon, 1420. The answer, you can also find this on the fish, 955thefish.com as a podcast. You can also go to my website and uh, listen to it there. Reach out with a question. Be able to take advantage of that free get to know you meeting. All the stuff that I talk about, I know it's I talk pretty fast and then there, it seems like there's a lot of stuff. It's actually pretty simple when you sit down and go through it. Uh, well, it's simple for me, but I've been doing this for 30 years. The, uh, but I can take the information that you have, give you a pretty good idea on where you're going, what kind of uh, lifestyle you could expect to, to be able to support in retirement. Um, if you need to make adjustments and I uh, can talk about that too. And that's free. That, that first meeting, we don't charge anything for it. It's just a get to know you meeting. And, and actually there's often a follow up meeting to that. The, uh, oftentimes, um, can't do everything in one meeting. So I'll just gather information, kind of give you an overview of the kind of stuff that you can do. And one of the things I would, I would be talking to people about that I'm talking to just about everybody about as I can is uh, that we look over the past five or six years in large company growth stocks, stocks like Apple, Netflix, Facebook, Amazon, that dominate the S&P 500 have actually done better than almost everything else on the planet. It's it's really pushed that index up. In, in the long run, it's actually outperformed about twenty five percent. I'm sorry, it's in it's in the top twenty five percent. In the short run, it's in the top ten. Now, here's the problem I have with that: if you're in the top ten percent of all um, investments, are you overpriced? That's kind of the key. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not as overpriced as it was a few months ago. Because it's still down just a little bit. But is it overpriced? A little bit. You know, some of the stocks in that index are overpriced a little bit. Now, and this is what happens when they get overpriced. So you go to October of, um, actually September last year, S&P's 2900. And it drops all the way down to 2300. So that's like going from 29 to 23. 2.9 million to 2.3 million, 290,000 to 230,000. That's, that's a 20% drop. And that occurred very quickly. That was actually about 90 days. And, uh, it went up almost as fast, incidentally. And in one day, remember I talked earlier in today's show about how if you missed the 10 best days over the past 15 years, well, that was before that, that, uh, study was done before December of 2018. When the S&P 500 went up 5% in one day, one day. <laughs> so this, this was part of uh, what I, I meant to talk about a little bit earlier. So I'll just finish it up right now. And then I'll get back to what we're talking about. <clears throat> the best days in stock markets have a tendency to occur right after the worst days. And see, here's the, here's what happens. The worst days happen. People finally throw in the towel say, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I have to go. And then the market rebounds without them. That's the pattern that's happened over and over and over again. See, to get the best days, you kind of have to have the worst days. A lot like a marriage. You know, the marriages aren't often, the best marriages aren't always smooth. 
you're going to have some bad days. You're going to have some good days. And uh, most of the time, I think you just need to stick it out. And I am not one to be able to give you any advice on that, incidentally. <laughs> but looking back, you know, you look back at your mistakes of your life, you're like, mm, wow, yeah, they uh there were times there I probably could have acted or behaved differently. And that goes for every facet of your life. When you're doing something and, and emotions are running high and the stock market will cause your emotions to run high. When you're looking at 20% of all the money that you've saved and worked for your entire life and in, in 90 days, it's down by 20%. That's pretty rough. That's rough. It's actually the main reason I have a job. What's rougher is saying, you know what? I'm getting out and then watching it go up without you. <laughs> That's rougher. I shouldn't be laughing at that. I, I laugh because everybody has that, um, struggles with that. Everybody struggles with that. And then it finally, it goes right back up over the next four months, five months, actually recovers the whole thing and then comes down again. And you know what? That's just kind of how it works. Don't worry about it. If you look out over a really long time period, and that's why uh, most investment advisors, most financial advisors, most institutions will tell you, you need to be a long-term investor because this is going to happen. And this is what they're talking about. This is the kind of stuff that's going to happen. And you just need to be prepared for it. It's not the end of the world. Actually, if you look at how the market's done, despite all those big drops, it's been the best performing overall asset class. It's, it's done better than bonds. It's done better than gold. It's done better than real estate. It's done just about better. It, it's the number one asset class as far as returns go. Also has a lot of risk. So those returns are not free. That's the price you pay. Now, how much risk are you willing to accept? That's the key. How much risk are you willing to accept? And here's a short answer to a long-winded radio show that's been posing the question, how much risk can you take? And the short answer is just figure out how much of a decline you think you can put up with Understand, the bigger the decline that you're willing to put up with, the more money you should make. That's not a guarantee. It's just to say you should make more if you're going to allow your money to fluctuate more. So when you get that number, whatever it is, mine's 40%. That's what I'm willing to do. I multiply 40% by two. That means 80% of my money could be invested in stocks. And if the stock market's cut in half, I'll be down about 40% or so. And I'm willing to accept that because I look at the long-term returns. Now, I am, I am considered aggressive. That's what I'm considered is an aggressive investor. I like to say aggressive uh, and confident. When I look at what's going on in the economy, when I look at the valuations on stocks, I'm very confident. When I look at the alternatives that you have to invest in today and, and uh, how they've done in the past, their valuation levels now, they're not overpriced. I... I'm very happy with that. Uh, there's a model that if you decided to take me up on that offer to come in to talk about what you wanted to do, I'll show you. It's I don't have a uh, license to distribute it out to everybody that's listening. That They want a lot of money to be able to do that. So, But anyway, if you come in on a one-on-one -on -one basis, I can show it to you. I can show you this model and explain to you why I really like that model because it's actually not, and the number one reason, it's not in the same stocks that are in the S&P 500. It's weighted very differently 
And in the long run, those types of things have a tendency to matter. In fact, on next week's show, I'm going to devote the show to the characteristics of a portfolio that, that end up mattering the most in the long run. What kinds of things, what kinds of things do you want in your funds? What kinds of things matter most in the long run? Because there are, today the, uh, the buzzword that the industry uses is factor. Let's use these factors. Okay. That, I'm fine with that. What kind of factors work? What kind don't? There are a lot of factor based funds out there that are there because they know that the public is interpreting them differently and what they actually mean. Kind of like that standard fluctuation thing or standard deviation thing. They know that you think that that means that's the cap on the risk. That's not exactly what they're saying. Technically, they're right. Morally, shame on them. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, they know that people are being, that they don't understand. And maybe they don't, you know, maybe they're just such eggheads that they don't know how the average person actually perceives things like standard deviation, standard variation, if you want to call it that. Yeah, that regression analysis. You know, once you've spent a lot of time learning all that stuff and how it works and you've really mastered it, sometimes it is very difficult to get back down to a level that the average person is going to understand. I think... What Albert Einstein once said, the uh, genius was somebody who could take a, a very complicated uh, subject or idea and explain it to a kindergartner, something along those lines. I, I botched that completely up. But what he meant was if he could explain it to somebody who has no experience in the industry and they could basically get it, or at least the general concept, then you were a genius. <laughs> That's how he considered, what he considered to be a genius. I thought it was pretty funny. Anyway. So that's what we're going to talk about on, on next week's show. Is uh, uh, And uh, again, if you'd like to come out and see some of this, I know I talk pretty fast. The show's pretty long. It's hard to, to go through the whole thing. Feel free to give us a call. You, know, you can come in. There's no cost. Yeah, I'll take a look at whatever you're doing. Uh, I'll give you my uh, honest opinion. I have nothing to, to gain by misleading somebody. When you mislead somebody, then they're going to find out. It's just a matter of time. It, it's just going to happen. So I am a fiduciary uh, and uh, means I have to take continuing education requirements. I'm supposed to look out for your best interest. I set my business up so that that is, it would only benefit me if it benefits you. That's kind of a big deal to me. So these are all things that uh, you'd probably want to ask about when you're, when you're shopping for a financial advisor, how to get paid, uh, what's in it for you. The, uh, I don't mind showing you exactly what we make, how we make it. I think it's completely fair. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a way that I would want to be treated. It's the type of person or the type of business that I'd want to deal with. That's how I set it up to begin with. Is it easy? Heck no. <laughs> It'd be a lot easier to do things a, a lot differently. But, uh, but I like, I think my opinion is that if you know what you're up against, if somebody has explained the advantages and disadvantages to whatever it is that you're thinking about doing more than often or more often than not. Anyway, you can make a pretty good decision. It's when information's being withheld uh, or uh, omitted. Sometimes it's an honest mistake. It actually, in my business, 
Yeah, it could be an honest mistake because there's a lot of stuff. It took me about five years. Just And I used to walk around with a dictionary of financial and accounting terms in my pocket. I think that's why my back is bad because I sat on that thing and it was about an inch and a half thick. <laughs> but I would, I would carry that around with me. Somebody would ask me a question. I don't know. Let me see. And I would look it up. And I'm sure when I was new, <laughs> that made a lot of people nervous <laughs> that I was looking these answers up because I didn't know what the answer was. And occasionally, actually, not it's pretty frequent. You have to look things up because things change. Now, the tax code is nowhere near the tax code it was when I started in this business. And I took my first class in income tax accounting in 1986. I don't know if you remember what that was, but that was the year that Reagan changed the entire tax code. In one year. <laughs> so I had to learn the old one and the new one. Yeah, that wasn't fair. <laughs> but I haven't. <laughs> That's pretty funny. The, um, yeah. Uh, so anyway, things have changed every year in that. And man, you want to talk about change. Nothing is as constant as change. Change is probably the only thing that doesn't change. Uh, it's always changing. World's always changed, always has, always will. Sometimes it's faster than others. Um, if you're worried about where you are right now, feel free to bring your investments in. I can pull them up. I can show you what, what you've got through the morning star. They've got this thing called an x-ray. It'll show you what the holdings are. And that's pretty cool. That's really cool. Um, most people have no idea what they own. And I think it's kind of funny because I run the reports forum. Uh, most people don't even look at those, by the way. It's, it's pretty, it, it's kind of funny, but I would. Um, but I can show them what percentages they have in each stock, which fund holds it, what percentage it makes up of their entire portfolio. And you know, that is so comforting when I see that, you know, Procter and Gamble, it, it, it's in three of the funds that I hold and the total exposure to Procter and Gamble is slightly less than 1%. Why, why does that make me happy? That means because I'm diversified. If something really bad happens to Procter and Gamble, it's not really going to affect me that much. Yeah. And that's nice. And Procter and Gamble is one of those stocks that I bought. In addition to that, and uh, I just recently uh, liquidated it because I got it at a much lower price and it's no longer undervalued. It's a great company and I still own it in a bunch of the funds that I have. See, I was like way overweight that stock when you add up the value that it makes up of the funds that I hold. And there was one item I didn't get to today. Oh, I guess you'll have to tune back in next week. But it's this uh, a, a great diversifier for stock portfolios. There's a little model. It only encompasses two exchange-traded funds. It, it's going to allow you to diversify significantly. Diversification is a key. Five stocks is not diversified. I don't care what Kramer says. <laughs> Yeah, that's dangerous. I mean, that is really dangerous. But, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to be truly diversified today. And now that I hear the music, I guess we'll have to wait till next week to find out how to increase your diversification levels easily. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. This is Bill Bullington. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon on 1420 The Answer. Also available on 955thefish.com, the website, bullingtoncapital.com. Have a good week, good investing, and good luck. Just caught another edition of the Bullington Capital Report, broadcasting every Saturday at 11 a.m. on AM 1420, The Answer.
If you have a question and you'd like to speak to Bill personally, you can call him at 330-664-0700. That's 330-664-0700. Or online at BullingtonCapital.com. That's BullingtonCapital.com. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Therefore, no current or prospective client should assume that the future performance of any specific investment, investment strategy, including the investments and or investment strategies recommended and or purchased by advisor or product made reference to directly or indirectly will be profitable. Different types of investment involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any specific investment will either be suitable or profitable for a client's investment portfolio. No client or prospective client should assume that any information presented serves as the receipt of or substitute for personalized investment advice from the advisor or any other investment professional. The preceding program has been paid for by Bullington Capital Management, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 